I gave you an assignment for today. I won't follow up with that declarative statement with a question. And that question would be, which I will not, how many of you did the assignment? <clears throat> but um, a book like Ecclesiastes is one of those books of the Bible that uh, we associate with what's called the wisdom literature of the Bible, but you have to think about some of the things that Solomon is saying. You have to think about and meditate upon and reflect upon some of the things that he's saying. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I sent Fred those questions, which he then did um, uh, forward on to you. Verses 2 through 8 of uh, Ecclesiastes 3 have been put to music. I'm pretty sure, I mean, I grew, I was in college in the 60s. And, uh, I mean, that was the age of Aquarius. Uh, some of you don't even have a clue what I'm talking about. But they put this song to music. Uh, and it's been um, put to music for a church, but it's also been church music, worship music, but it's also been very uh, much enshrined in a secular song that was uh, very, very popular in the age of Aquarius. What I wanted you to think about was um, what really is something very theological in this chapter. Up to this point in the study of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has pretty much left out a discussion of God. He hasn't brought God into the picture. If you remember the first two chapters, the theme is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Nothing makes sense if the box is closed, if the universe is closed. You remember that discussion? Well, now he begins to bring God into the picture, and he wants us, now I'm adding to it because that word is not there, but he wants us to reflect on this. If there is a God, and this God is sovereign, and his providence is real, what difference does that make? So let's talk about these two words. The word sovereign and the word providence. Because Solomon is going to bring God into the discussion now, and he's going to ask us to reflect on if God is in the picture, and this God who's in the picture is a sovereign God, and his providence is real, what difference does that make? So let's make sure we understand these two terms. So now you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you, what do these two terms mean? What does the term sovereign or sovereignty, sovereign is a modifier, it's an adjective, sovereignty is a noun, providence is a noun, providential is an adjective, so either one works. Sovereign. If we say a statement like God is sovereign, what does that mean that God is sovereign? He doesn't answer to anyone. Alright. Uh, he's supreme. He answers in a sense only to himself. Um, okay? He's in control. He's in control. Does God reign? Does God rule? Yes. yes. Sovereign, as a word, refers to the rule and reign of God. If you would go, my son lives in, in London, uh, 
with his wife, who, by the way, is pregnant. We're expecting our first grandchild, which is sort of an exciting thought for us. But to say God reigns and rules. We would look at England. Uh, England is a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. Queen Elizabeth II reigns, right? Yes. Right? She reigns. I mean, she has a crown, she has a scepter. Uh, she's given a document. They just opened a new session of parliament. She gives a document. She reads it. She has nothing to do with it, but it's just a formality. Does Queen Elizabeth II rule? Absolutely not. She has virtually no power at all. She's kind of a figurehead. She's part of the history of England. She's part of the, of the grandeur and majesty of the greatness that England used to be. Because England is not a minor power, but it's not a major power anymore. England used to rule the seas. It doesn't anymore. The United States rules the seas. So you would say she reigns, but she doesn't rule. That's not true of God. God both reigns and rules. I want to come back to that in a minute, but what does it mean to, to speak of the providence of God or to say that our God is a providential God? What does that mean? That's not as familiar to you, is it? It would be provider. I'm sorry? It would be provider. Oh, that, would be, that would be a dimension of it. It really would. Um, providence or God is a providential God it, in, it means that he is involved, that he superintends, and protects, cares for his world. He is sovereign, he rules, he reigns, but he's also involved. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not a uh, master clockmaker who uh, creates a perfect clock, winds it up, and then leaves. Solomon is encouraging us, and, and again, although he does not use these theological or doctrinal terms, um, he's in effect encouraging us to bring God into the picture. And what difference does it make? What difference does it make if he's in the picture? What difference does it make if he is involved? What difference does it make if he does rule, not only reign? And so as is typical in, um, in wisdom literature, which is what this is, he approaches it almost from the uh, perspective of like poetry, a very figurative language. And so what I would like to do is just read the first eight verses. Just, just follow me with this. This is it's very poetic, and I, I, whenever I read this, I think of that song. I can't remember who who made. Who was it? The birds. The birds. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It would have taken me a long time to remember that. That's right. Thank you for being on top of that very significant piece of information. <laughs> Solomon writes: There is an appointed time for everything. I want you to notice, you'll see this several times, the word every or everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Now, up to this point, he has used the phrase under the sun, which occurs 29 times in the book. Now, he says under heaven, which is a different nuance. Because heaven is where the throne of God is. A time to give birth 
and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh. Time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to throw stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. <clears throat> You cannot change time, circumstances, or events. There's a time for everything. Every event under heaven. As he has said earlier in the book, there's a rhythm to life. There's a pattern to life. And this, this is important for you and me. This is important for the person who walks with God to understand. Because this just isn't chance. This just isn't, ran- there isn't a randomness to the universe. God has established it this way. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, God is creating. And he creates the heavenly bodies. And in that same verse, he says this is for times and seasons and eras. So who created time? God did. Because we tie time, we order our lives according to time based on the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and so on. Solomon is trying to get us to think that the pattern of life, the structure of life, is ordained by God. There is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. In your notes, what I did, I I just, um, I tried to summarize what really are polar opposites in each one of these. There are 14 of these in this passage. Yeah. And it's it's just the balance of this is, is really quite, quite remarkable. This, this, these polar opposites in a multiple of seven, you read through them, and he talks about, in effect, the totality of all of life. Every aspect, every dimension, every facet, every nuance of life is covered here. Um, can I ask you a couple of questions here? If God is sovereign and God's providence is real, is there such a thing as chance and randomness and coincidence in life? Do you understand what I'm asking? The... uh, one of the words that's very much a part of the language of uh, the young generation today is randomness. Just random. That's random thought. Randomness. Random that. Solomon being, seems to be saying probably not a word you should use if you're a wise person. Now, does that 
what does that do to your thinking? Does this challenge any things that are a part of your worldview or the way you think about things? Do you understand what I'm asking you? But isn't he saying, be prepared, there are good things and there are bad things? Be prepared for the ups and downs. That's basically, I think, the simple part of what he's saying here. He's going through all the ups and downs, but he's saying, be prepared, there are ups and downs in life. And that's the way I yeah. took it when I read it. I think that's true. I think that's true. Anything else about this? See, I asked you to read it and think about it, and that's why I hope two or three of you maybe did that. Joel, you were... Well, I think it's kind of... Um, I think you mentioned this earlier in the, in the book when Solomon talks about work and it's all humanity and so forth. It's, maybe it kind of gets back to a lot of it is um, balance in terms of how we conduct our lives. I mean, it's... You know, that there's... We should plan and, and you know try to do things, but not put our faith in those things and mm -hmm. in our own plans. So kind of like saving for retirement, for example, mm -hmm. that's a wise thing to do. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to put your faith and trust or be arrogant about that. And you know, uh, like the guy Jesus talked about that said, "I'm going to turn on my barns and build bigger yeah, ones." Yeah, build bigger ones. Jesus called him a fool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, is that part of the tension or balance that he's kind of continuing on in this, this I, section? I, th I think so. Because he's getting, he's getting to kind of a, a high point, which is verse 11, which I, I want to get to in, in just a second. But um, this, con this pattern, this rhythm, this... Um, seven very positive, seven very negative things of life, that the ups and downs, the mountains and the valleys of, of life and so on. What's our, what's our tendency when we're in the valleys and we think about God? You're a little depressed. Yeah, it, well... You're not Huh? You're not thinking about him. You're thinking about your problems. Yeah, and you, sometimes you get to the point where, well, he's abandoned me. He's not in control. This happened to me, and... God, where were you? My, if you study the Psalms, I, this Sunday where I was preaching, I, I preached on Psalm 28. And David begins, by King David begins the Psalm by saying, God, where are you? You're not hearing my prayers. I've been praying to you. I have been asking you. And he, he uh, makes the conclusion that doesn't last more than two verses, but he, he makes the conclusion that God's silence means God's indifferent. That God doesn't care, which it doesn't take him too many verses to combat. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> and he restores his confidence and his certainty and his, his faith and his trust in his God who is sovereign, who's just, who's going to make the rights wrong, even if he doesn't see that occur in his life. The patterns and rhythms of life these opposites, which are an aspect and a dimension to one degree or another of all of our lives. For us to have, Joel used the, the correct word, the balance, and to, to minimize the tension, is whether we're in a valley or whether we're in a mountain peak, our, our, our consistent faith and trust in God should not be diminished. In other words, this is ideally, our life should be like this, even though we're going through this. 
Because Solomon is saying, if there is no God, then it's really, really difficult in the mountains and valleys. But if there is a God, then the mountains and valleys begin to make some sense. There's some purpose and meaning to all that's going on in life. Because otherwise, and I, to me, this is to me this is one of the great challenges of the modern world. With science, and I'm very much in favor of science and am committed to it, but science can lead to the conclusion that we really don't need God. God really, I, I understand so much, I don't really need God. Nothing could be further from the truth. But the result of that then is you end up with almost a randomness. I remember uh, back in the 1970s, a man named Carl Sagan made a, a television series called uh, Cosmos. And in the third or fourth uh, episode, because I watched it about five or six times, in the third or fourth episode, he's talking about um, the uh, evolutionary hypothesis. And, of course, he buys into that. There is no God. And so he says, we are a mere cosmic accident. That's a quote. And I remember that so distinctly. I've never forgotten that I've used it a couple of times. Just think about it. We are a cosmic accident. That means we are a product of randomness. We're a product of chance. We're an accident. There's no design. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. We're just an accident. The Bible will have nothing to do with that. You're not a cosmic accident. You are a person of infinite worth and value to God. He created you's image, and he makes it possible for you to have a relationship with him through his son. That brings immense meaning and purpose. Solomon is saying... God has ordained everything. There's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event. And this, this poetic section, which is really what it is, is poetry, is, is a beautiful reminder that all dimensions and aspects of my life are under God's sovereign control, and he's involved. <clears throat> Does that resonate with you guys? But now he asks, okay, if that's true, if that's true, verse 9, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? He's back to the question we've seen in the previous chapters. If God is sovereign, and if his providence of real, is real, does this help answer my question? Why do I do what I do? Now he answers it. Now in your notes, I really took apart verse 11. But let me read 10 and 11 together. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He, and the he refers to God, has made everything, you can translate that a variety of ways, appropriate or beautiful or purposeful in its time. He has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Now, that third part is a little more complicated. 
Now, if you look at your notes, I tried to flesh this out. If God is sovereign, and if God's providence is real, does it make a difference in how I work, how I live my life? Yes, in three ways. God has made everything appropriate or beautiful or meaningful. We wrote there in the notes, God has made everything beautiful in its time. God in his providence has an appropriate time for every activity that Solomon discussed. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a mean, has a has meaning to it. There is no randomness. There is no chance if God's sovereignty and God's providence is real. I am not a product of chance. Do you want to talk about that? Because the more you think about that, that God has made everything beautiful in its time, appropriate, meaningful, purposeful in its time. When you're in the mountaintops, you can shake your head in agreement with that. When you're in the valley, do you want to shake your head in agreement with that? I don't. I want to, but those have been the times that have been the most spiritually significant to me. Mm. Because it's, it's more like, okay, God, I need you. Mm. And that's, you know, I think that's an attitude that God wants from Absolutely. us, is to acknowledge that we need him. And, you know, when things are really going great, it's pretty easy to say, I'm doing fine. I'll let you know if I need you. Absolutely. But in the upturns, you need to be thankful. Mm-hmm. In the downturns, you look for guidance. Should you be thankful in the downturns, too? Actually, yeah. It's easier to look for Yeah. Because if you go back to verse 1, you have everything and you have every event. Nothing is excluded from that. Now, doesn't that create some tension for you guys, though? It sounds like predestination, doesn't it? Well... <laughs> Oh yeah, but I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not necessarily. I will get into that if you want me to. But listen, guys. I mean, what comes into your mind with things like? Wait a minute. What, what, you know, just just a minute here. What about cancer, heart disease, automobile crashes, tornado in Pilgrim, Nebraska? What about those things? That's not included in everything, is it? Or every event, is it? Or is it? We just don't have any control over it. God's got control over everything. Okay. I remember when my wife got cancer, you know, <clears throat> for the second time. And uh, <clears throat> I left the, the hospital, went out in the car, and the windows were up. And I screamed at him, mm. yelled, and um, it was a, it was a prayer. 
I didn't realize it at the time, but I was talking to him because I wanted some accountability from him because I said, you just sit up there and you're so godly proud and you... aren't protecting my wife. And I cussed him. Mm. I don't cuss, but I cussed him. And I just, until I was exhausted, and I just kind of fell back in my seat, and I said, nevertheless, you're God. And I was fine. I had enough strength then and <laughs> assurance that he was my God and he did care. Mm. But I had, I had to tell him how I felt. Think he was upset with you telling him that? I think he loved me dearly. Mm -hmm. And I loved him, <laughs> but I had to get yeah. through that. Yeah. And you see that same kind of reaction uh, to the events of life in the Psalms. You, you really do. I mean, there are some of those Psalms. David is really, in most cases, David wrote 77 of the Psalms. David is really ticked off at God. I mean, he really rails at God. But then he comes back. Usually the first half of the Psalm, he's railing at God. The second half of the Psalm, he's back. Um, I really believe that God, um, and I haven't, I've done what you did, Fred, a number of times, uh, uh, a very unique situation for you, but those kinds of circumstances of life, I suspect many of the guys around this table have done something similar, where you just, you are so emotionally uh, exhausted, you're so angry, you're so frustrated, you can't make sense of things, so you just naturally rail at God. I think God understands that. As a matter of fact, I think God is okay with that. That's one of the reasons why we struggle with the right language when it comes to God. The Bible does not seem to allow us to use a word like God caused. In my case, my wife did have a heart condition and an autoimmune disease which almost prohibits her from traveling or being active in almost anything. The Bible doesn't seem to say God, allow us to say God caused it. Instead, we use words like God permitted it, God allowed it for some greater purpose. Um, the best place for me, and if you don't mind, let me interject this here. The best place for me in settling this is Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Job is presented as an upright man, a man of integrity. He's called the greatest man in the East. And so Satan comes into the throne room of God, and what does God say? See my man down there, Job? He's my man. This is what it's all about. And if you remember, it's good to read. I read Job 1 and 2 quite a lot. You read it and reread it and you reread it. God is holding Job up. 
This is what I'm doing on planet Earth. And Satan dismisses that. Ah, anybody would follow a God like you. Look at how you blessed him. Ten kids, the wealthiest man in the East. I'll tell you what, God. Let me take all of that from him and I'll have him cursing you. So what does God say? Okay, Satan. Take it all. And so Job loses all of his children and all of his wealth. At the end of chapter 1, he's sitting in the garbage dump of us, scraping at these sores. You remember what he says? God gave and God took. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand that, do you? I mean, that is really hard for me to identify with. And so Satan comes in again. See, God says, Job, see, I told you. He would remain faithful to me. Nah. He's only skin for skin. He's only interested in his own skin. Let me take his life and he'll curse you. God says, no, no, uh, you cannot take his life, but you can inflict his body. So he does. And Mrs. Job comes along and she says, I'll tell you what, honey, this is paraphrase, give it up. Curse God and die. is isn't worth it. Everything you taught me, everything you taught the children, doesn't matter. Everything, it's, it's a lie. It's not true. Look what God's done to you. And Job says, I cannot curse God. Everything he's given to me, he's chosen to take away, but I still will worship him. That's it's amazing, isn't it? So God didn't cause that to happen, but he permitted it. He allowed it for a much greater reason. And unless Job wrote the book, and we... I'm not sure he did. We think he did. But unless Job wrote the book, he never really understood what was going on. And at the end of the book, he is just railing, hurling, questioning after question of God. I'm innocent. Everything I've done, I haven't, I haven't gone against you, and yet you have allowed this to happen to me. Why did you do this to me? And then if you remember near the end, God says, uh, Job, sit down. Let's have a conversation here. Were, were, you, were you there when I created the earth, Job. Were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I created, he just lists all these animals? And, and I mean, what's, what's God doing in those questions? Job, you do not, you do not have the big picture of things. Can you trust me? And Job says, even if you slay me, I will trust you. And then God restored what Job had lost. So I don't know, Fred, if you can say God caused your wife to get cancer a second time, but he permitted it, just as he did for my wife uh, with the disease she has. But yet in and through it, it's, um, you start to see some things that God is doing in and through those things. Um, we, I know we've talked about her before. You know the name Johnny Erickson, Tata. You, you know that. Don't you know her? She, uh, oh, goodness, it would have been back in the 70s, I think. She was swimming. She was a young teenager, and she uh, dove into a shallow area and broke the fourth vertebrae in her neck and became a quadriplegic. 
And she, she, a wonderful book she wrote called A Step Further, but she talks about the journey she went with God through this. Where she actually, she absolutely cursed God and denied him and said, I'm an atheist. If you're going to do this to me, I don't want anything to do with you. And then she went through that, and then she tried a faith healer, and then she, she just went through everything until she came to the conclusion God has a purpose for this in my life because I cannot, I cannot make sense of this, but I have to undeniably trust that he's still in control. Now, she says, I, I heard her say this on the Larry King show of all places. This is, goes back about seven or eight years ago when he was still on. I, when I was president, I used to get up a lot and make notes and think about things coming up the next day, but... This one night, it was in July, it was so hot, and I got up and I turned on the television, and there was Larry King interviewing Johnny Erickson Todd. I was pretty sure God just wanted me to get up and see that, because it was an amazing interview. I don't know if you know much about it. Larry King was one of those guys who probed. And he really, he really was interested in people's faith. He couldn't understand them, and I assume he's still the same way. And he just could not understand Johnny Erickson Todd, what she was saying, because she kept affirming her faith and trust in God, and she said, when I get to heaven, I'm throwing that wheelchair down the stairs of heaven. She said, I'm going to walk in the new heavens and new earth. And you know, he kept, he just didn't understand that. Because she said, and this was the statement she said, I've come to the conclusion that being a quadriplegic is a good gift from a good God. That's an extraordinary statement to make. Isn't it? That's a supernatural statement to make. What Solomon wants us to do is take these attributes of God, although he does not directly use them in the text, that's what he's talking about. Our God is a sovereign God, and our God is providential. Everything is under his control. And that takes the randomness and the chance out of life, and it instills a purpose and meaning to life. God makes everything beautiful in its time. Disease, yes, he can bring good out of that. Heartache, yes, he can bring good out of that. And then he says he has set eternity in their heart. A very problem, it's a very problematic phrase in the Hebrew language. Very, very, very difficult. The best way, and this is what I wrote there in your notes, the best way, I think, to understand that is God, through faith in him, gives us the capacity to see the eternal significance of what we do. That it matters. From the perspective of eternity, it matters how we live our lives. It matters how we see and understand things. It matters. It has meaning. It has purpose. God gives us the capacity to grab that. Not necessarily to understand it, because that's the second part of, the, excuse me, the third part of verse 11. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning of tense. I'm reading from the American Standard. It's very wordy there. But look at what I wrote here. Yet... No human can ever understand the sovereign, eternal plan of God in all its fullness and complexity. That is why human labor often seems so insignificant and meaningless. We do not have the divine perspective, nor do we have omniscience, know everything. 
That is often what produces frustration, uncertainty, and a sense of meaninglessness. This, this is where a, the, the, the section 11C, this is where faith and trust must come in. We can see the beauty in all that God does, the purpose perhaps in all that God does. There is meaning and purpose to things. We can begin to understand in faith that there's an eternal significance to things. But it requires a trust, a confidence, and a faith in God. Jim, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do, you, do you think, based on what you just said, that, that uh, something similar to it, that when, when this happened to Job and when this, these things happened to us, that he is affirming we're right on track here. This is going to be good. Although I, I don't know about I Job. think so. Uh, it... Yes, I think so, because it means that um, even though we cannot see and understand everything God's doing, he is saying to us, trust me with it, and I will bring good out of it. Fred, do you think it's possible, is it even probable, that sometimes we may not see the good that comes out of something this side of heaven. You understand my question? Yes. Kind of the answer is yes. That's why I ask you to read this and think about it before we had class. Because this, this section is one of the most profound sections in the scriptures. I mean, this is really profound. This is deep. Because it pushes... Um, what a good way to put this. It pushes the limits of our humanity. Listen, you're, most of you guys here are probably like me. As a man, I want to know why. I want to know the answer. I want to know the reason. Once I get it, I'll be okay, but I want to know why. Sometimes God's response is, I'm not going to tell you why. But I'm going to ask you to trust me with this. I'm going to ask you to have faith in me. That this isn't slipping up on my blind side. This isn't catching me off guard. I am sovereign. My providence is real. I do have your best interest at heart. If you go back to Genesis 3, I was teaching that this morning in another group, uh, another group of guys. We're in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you go back to Genesis 3, it is, it is incredibly important Satan shows up in the garden, form of a serpent. And you see why he's called crafty and shrewd and deceitful. He wants to find out, does Eve really know God's word? Remember, did God actually say you are not to eat of the trees in the garden? And what she does is she responds... And misquotes God's word in three ways. She makes three mistakes. Then what does Satan do? He's got her. She doesn't know. Then he says, you know what? God's keeping something from you. When you eat of that tree, you become like him. 
He doesn't want you to do that. So he's holding back. He does not have your best interests at heart. So what does she do? She takes and she eats. And the rest is history, as they say. That is why, if I can be very personal, that is why I teach four Bible studies in this city. Because I want men to know the Word of God. Because you look at Genesis 3, you see the consequences of not knowing the Word of God. God has spoken. Solomon is saying to us in chapter 3, there is a meaning, there is a purpose to life if God is sovereign and his providence is real. That is not going to answer all your questions. That's not going to give you absolute, total information and perspective on absolutely everything about life. It's not going to do that. But it requires and it insists that you trust him. What God does is appropriate, meaningful, purposeful, and beautiful. And he gives us the capacity through his word to see the eternal significance of everything. But it's not going to make us omniscient where we're going to know everything. I'm an historian. My four degrees are in history and historical theology. The most difficult thing for me to understand about God is his eternality. That God's eternal. God is not bound by time and space. So God sees Jim Eckman, and he sees me from the moment I was conceived on into eternity. That's how he sees me. He doesn't just see me on, what's the date today, June 18th or 19th, whatever it is. He, is, he, he does see that, but he sees how everything fits together. He sees how absolutely everything in my life fits into everything else he's doing. And every aspect Every aspect of my life has purpose and meaning to him. I don't see that. Because I want to know, I mean, I'm a strategic thinker. I would, I've done many strategic plans because I want to I have everything laid out for the future. And God says, that's good, plan. Have strategies, have tactics. But always remember, I'm in control. Those of you who are busy men, I remember when I was president, I mean, I had a very tight counter. My secretary would schedule on 15-minute blocks, and I had everything laid out for the day. You know, there were very few days where everything went according to my schedule because God has a right to interrupt. And I always found comfort in what Erwin McManus speaks of as, as those divine appointments in the day. God is in control. Solomon, that's what Solomon is getting at here. And again, for about the fourth time, that's why I wanted you to read this and reflect on it and think about it. So as you've been reading and thinking and hearing me talk, any of any questions or thoughts or comments about this? I just had a thought uh, going back to the God has made everything beautiful in its time. I know that Solomon was not a prophet, but... Um, I can't help but think about Jesus saying about talking about his time mm. when he said, "My time has mm. not yet come." Not, not come yeah. And whether you use the word beautiful or appropriate, mm. uh, when Jesus' time came, everything was made. Right, it was finished. Exactly, right? his work was exactly. finished. So that just that made me think of that. Exactly. 
That's a that's a good comment, Andrew, because you do see that in Christ's ministry. He, my time has not yet come, but he's up and got guys. We're going to Jerusalem. Now the time is here, and I'm going to be delivered by the elders, and I'm going to, you know, and all that. You know what the, the guys respond? That's right. You know, I got to pray because we've got to quit tomorrow. We'll deal with the rest of chapter thirteen. No, we won't. Chapter 3, excuse me. And not tomorrow, next Wednesday. <laughs> Lord, I pray for the other guys here. Uh, I pray for each one of them. Lord, they have many burdens, many responsibilities. The stress is real. But uh, Solomon's instructions here in this passage remind us that you are a God who is in control and you are a God who is involved. Uh, we're not hopeless. We're not helpless. We're not, you do not leave us on our own. You give us all that we need, and you give us encouragement. You give us strength to be able to get through the valleys as well as have the proper perspective on the mountaintops that are part of just the regimen of life. Help to increase our faith in you, our trust in you, our confidence in you. And I commit each man here and those who are not with us today as well to you. Enable them and help them to represent you well in all that they do and say in Christ's name. See you next week. Thank you, Jim.